Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 9. We'll begin reading in verse 10 and read through verse 15. Ezra 9, verses 10 through 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us from the example, from the word, from the teaching, from the commandment of your scripture. Teach us today and implant this Word in our hearts. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A month or so ago we began looking at Ezra's prayer. And you may recall that I told you that this prayer could be classified as both an intercessory prayer and a prayer of confession. uh, What is called a confessory prayer. An intercessory prayer, you'll recall, is a prayer that you pray for the deep spiritual needs of somebody else. And we saw in the prior verses that Ezra began with his personal shame at the sin of the people, but then began to lead them in understanding through using the word we so that they would understand how evil and destructive their sin had truly been. His prayer still into these verses contains the word we as he continues to lead his people into repentance and into confession. It's the type of prayer that was meant as we saw at the time when we looked at the command of James 5.16 where he says, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now you may want to make a note of that verse because we're going to come back to it later to look at the difference in the word confess in this verse and in other verses that we'll look at today because there is a distinction there. But I saved for this time in these verses the discussion of the confession Ezra is making in this prayer because this is where he gets to the heart of the people's sin. This is where he gets to the heart of his confession of sin. To this point... In the previous verses, he has described the extent of their sin, 
but not its nature. You can go ahead and take a second read back through verses 5 through 9. He describes the sin as overwhelming. He describes the sin as covering their heads. He describes the sin as long-standing from their fathers of old. And he describes God's gracious dealings with them, even in His just punishment of the people. But nowhere in those first verses has he said what the sin is that has overcome them so thoroughly. He gets to that in the passage we read today. That's why I've waited to this point to look at Ezra's confession because that is what verses 10 through 12 are. An exemplary confession. But you may ask, what is confession according to the Scripture? When we say to confess something, what does it mean? Most of us have seen enough legal television to be able to understand a criminal confession is to be when someone declares themselves guilty of committing a crime. And there are elements of that in a biblical confession as well. Perhaps some are familiar with the Roman church's sacrament of confession, where a person confesses their sin to a priest to receive forgiveness or penance from him. But almost none of that has any basis in Scripture at all, save a poor interpretation of that James 5.16 passage we, I introduced earlier. The failure of these two examples to tell us what biblical confession is, and indeed what many in the evangelical church might consider confession, is that they are just words. They are just a statement. The confessed criminal is simply stating his guilt. He's not changing his ways. He is not intending anything different in the future. And just as the erring Catholic has often done the same thing, to be cleansed of that pollution of the world, only to go and dive back into it. And too often, even in the evangelical church, confession of a sin in the manner mentioned in James 5.16 is met with something akin to, that's okay, nobody's perfect. How many times have we tried to assuage someone's guilt when they confess their sin to us, when they tell us what they have done wrong, and we say, we all sin from time to time. Now, I'm not suggesting we should beat the confessing sinner over the head spiritually or physically. Nothing of the sort. But I would say that responding to a brother's sin with less than a concerted intention and commitment to pray urgently for that person is akin to spiritual negligence. When someone trusts us enough to open their heart to us, we must always seek the Spirit's guidance in that holy moment. But I will tell you that none of these collections of words, none of these confessions to others gets at the heart of what is scriptural confession. Because from the point of view of Scripture, confession is useless unless it is born of repentance. Confession is worthless unless it is born in repentance from that sin. 
In fact, you could say that biblically, confession is the sound repentance makes. It is the sound of repentance. This confession made directly to God through Jesus Christ is the very song of our repentance as we turn from sin back to God. And one of the most recognized examples of confession in the Bible is Psalm 51. You might say that this psalm, written by in the aftermath of King David's repentance after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, is inspired by those events, but doesn't directly address them. Bathsheba is not mentioned except in the header. Uriah the Hittite is missing altogether. It reads very much like the cry of David's heart in repentance, but it is written in such a way that others, that you and I and others around David could, who had committed different sins could use the same route to repentance. That is why it's such a beautiful psalm. It leads us to the very repentance that God commands. When David declares in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 51, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It sounds a whole lot like Ezra's prayer in our passage today, doesn't it? When Ezra says things like, We have forsaken your commandments. You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. And finally, O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just. So biblical confession is inseparable from repentance. And what we mean by repentance is leaving your sin behind. It's realizing that you're going in the wrong direction and turning 180 degrees to turn and go in the other direction. It is realizing that we are rushing headlong into sin and away from God and then turning on our heels and moving in the other direction. And so today, I would like to take the rest of our time together to look at the excellent aspects of biblical confession over a worldly confession. The first aspect of biblical confession is that we identify specifically what we did that was sinful. Now that may be harder than it sounds at first. Because while we may all freely confess that we are at times sinful, many would not care to detail the particular sins to which they're prone, even to God. We would rather go to Him and say, God, forgive me of my sins today, instead of saying, God, forgive me of this sin today. But since confession is born in repentance, you cannot repent of sin in general. You repent of specific sins as they arise. But as we try to confess those specific sins to God, we often find ourselves minimizing or justifying our sins, even in our prayers. To the point that if we justify those sins enough, we cease to recognize them as sins at all. For example, if we find ourselves greedy for money or possessions, we might classify ourselves instead as overly cautious with money. 
or as one who recognizes the value of a dollar. We might justify our covetous desires by styling ourselves an expert or an appreciator of fine things. Where we might harbor vengeance in our hearts, we might think it's just a protective measure to make sure we are not victimized again. Where we fail to value the Lord's day, we shrug it off as a day of recreation or we postpone it to sometime more convenient for us. Gluttony becomes high metabolism. Drunkenness becomes a mere disease. Even theft becomes justified if we really wanted what we took or if we really needed it. And pride often masquerades as Christian zeal. The world will help you with excuse after excuse, euphemism after euphemism to transform your sin into mere perfections, imperfections. But when the Bible teaches us confession, there is no sugarcoating our sin. It is as useless as gift wrapping a pile of horse manure. Our sin is odious to God. And we have to recognize it as such. Our sin made necessary the sacrifice of God's only Son on the cross. How do we dare make light of it? How can we possibly minimize it? So how do we identify those things in our life that are sinful, particularly those things we can so easily camouflage with words. There's only one way. We must always be closer to Scripture. It trains us and sharpens us to have the right judgment of our own behavior. It teaches us God's perfect standard Because God's Word dispels all the confusion and the camouflage that gets wrapped around our sin. In that grand psalm, Psalm 119, the theme of that longest chapter of the Bible is the benefit of God's Word and walking in His ways. The psalmist says in verse 11 of that chapter, I have stored up your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've said it before, but it bears frequent repetition. The Bible is not a book to be merely read. It is a book to be obeyed. And so why do we read the Bible encouraging one another to this daily discipline? Because it is the only source of truth God has given us to train us in righteousness. Hebrews 4.12 describes it as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What other than the Word of God is able to do that? What else has God given us for this very purpose? It is so powerful that the Holy Spirit Himself uses Scripture to guide us in sanctification. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm certain you've experienced this. 
You're reading a portion of Scripture or perhaps listening to an exposition or teaching and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit applies it to your life in a way you had never considered before. It's not a new revelation in that God has given us a new commandment, but it is a new understanding where you have, as James described in chapter 1, verse 21, received the word implanted. The Scripture changes our conscience. And that's the way the Spirit uses Scripture in our lives. When the psalmist says in Psalm 119-105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That light is what takes away all shadow and reveals our deeds and our intentions perfectly. And we are laid bare before God for His mercy. And in our confession for the sins we commit, all this enables us to be quite specific in identifying our guilt. One more example I'd like to bring to your attention is Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, we're introduced to this chief tax collector of Jericho. As a child, you may have been taught to sing about his climb up the sycamore tree to get a glimpse of Jesus as He came through town. Perhaps that song's even running through your head right now. But do you recall how the song ends? It ends with Jesus telling Zacchaeus He'll be coming to His house today. But that wasn't the end of the story. Not by a long shot. Because while Jesus was there, we read in Luke 19, verses 8 through 10, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Recall the rich young ruler had trouble on that front. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I call your attention in that passage to one of the smallest words there, if. If I have defrauded anyone. Because the way he says it, he is not proclaiming a hypothetical situation. He's not saying, if perhaps I might have taken more tax than I was entitled then I, and then I'm made aware of it, I'll restore it to them fourfold. That's not what he's saying. He's not declaring a new business policy of improved customer service. And he's not even stating his good intentions for the future. That word if is what Greek writers call the first class conditional state. You don't have to remember that. The name's not important It's not nearly as important as what it means. When this form is used, the speaker is assuming the statement to be true. So he's not saying, if I possibly have defrauded anyone, even though if is a good literal translation of that, what he is saying is, where I have defrauded anyone. He knows it's true. 
But you see why that's important to us today. Because Zacchaeus was making his confession to Jesus. Where I have defrauded anyone, I will make it right. He says, I am done with that. And I will go and I will make restitution. As it is, as I said earlier, the sound that repentance makes. And on that basis, Jesus declares to him, today salvation has come to this house because he has repentance and he has confessed his sin to Jesus. How long had Zacchaeus justified his own actions, living in wealth on the back of his thefts, but no longer He had repented and confessed his sins before God. The first sure step of salvation. And that brings us to the second aspect of biblical confession. Is that we judge our actions by God's standard, not by our good intentions. We touched on this as we looked at the first characteristic earlier today. But it's important that we understand that this is the heart of biblical confession. We, in our confession, must agree in our hearts the sin was wrong in the first place. You can imagine what might happen if it was not part of true confession. If we didn't have to really believe that what we did was wrong... You might even have so-called evangelists telling people all they had to do was say the right words... And then they could be saved. Perhaps praying something that they might call a sinner's prayer or some other nonsense like that. By saying the right words, God is compelled to save you. Confession is not about speaking the right words. It's about defining sin the same way God defines sin. The root of the word confession itself is the same throughout the Bible. It means to say the same thing about sin. But not merely speaking the words that something is wrong. It's a knowledge, it's a conviction that springs from within that compels us to agree fully with the law of God about our sin and its sinfulness. It is fully acknowledging your guilt to God. I told you earlier that we pick up the James 5.16 passage because the word he uses here, confess, is different than most other instances of the word. What James is saying in that passage, and it is a powerful command, is more akin to admit your sins to one another so that you may pray for one another. Because the difference in the word he uses in James 5.16 and the confession that is commanded throughout Scripture is because the word that James uses here assumes that you have already made confession of that sin to God. That you have already gone to God and said against you and you only have I sinned. It assumes you have been convicted in your heart over the guilt of that particular sin 
And James is dealing simply with how the church can stand guard over the hearts of her members. Because this passage should not be seen as the primary stage of confession, but a secondary stage to reinforce true repentance. We see in both David's prayer in Psalm 51 and in Ezra's prayer here today, there is a full admission to God's complete justice and innocence in the matter. When God judges people, He does so from a position of complete innocence. He is not culpable for any of our sin. We are the ones who have transgressed His law. We see in Ezra, You, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. We see, O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just. And then we see, Behold, We are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. It's ironic that in our minds we equate innocence with weakness or fragility. But God is completely innocent, but is entirely not weak and not fragile. And the innocence He calls us to through repentance and faith made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ is neither weak nor fragile as well. And that brings us to the third aspect of biblical confession. But that confession according to the Scripture changes your intentions for that sin in the future. I said earlier that confession is not merely good intentions, and I stand by that. But because confession is the sound that repentance makes, there is an inseparable aspect of changing your behavior to avoid that sin in the future. And this is the moment of truth the returning Jews are facing in this passage in Ezra this week, will they make the necessary changes to follow God's law? Or are they simply looking for a free pass for their sin? Do they want God to hose them off from the pollution of the land so that they can go and dive back in? Or are they truly repentant of what they've done? Put another way, will they love God more then they love their sin. And for that matter, will you? Because confession is not about how it makes you feel or even what the confession does for you. Confession is about realigning your life with what God has commanded in His Word, period. And it is done for His glory. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, describes the state of someone who is confessing without repentance. Hear these terrifying words in 2 Peter 2.20 and following. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of this world, the pollution of this world, it's the same word, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Most of us have known people even in some cases ourselves, who simply wanted forgiveness for some sin. We clung to 1 John 1.9 where it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in our reliance on that verse, we didn't recognize that confession includes the intention to leave that sin behind. That confession always includes repentance. That confession is always born out of repentance. Because that is what the Apostle Peter is describing. Those who would seek forgiveness and cleansing without any intention of leaving the sin behind. And that's the very danger Ezra is describing in this passage when he says, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? It is a dangerous thing to tread underfoot the mercy of God. Ezra is certain here that if they do not truly repent, God is perfectly right to wipe them out and start over from another set of Jews in another area. If they blow their chance, God has another remnant. How many Christians carry the judgment of God on themselves even when it doesn't jeopardize their eventual salvation? We see an example of this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and following, where Paul is dealing with this oft-erring church in the matter of the Lord's Supper. He says to them, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Notice the warning here. God, in His love and His mercy, will afflict His own people even to the point of sickness or death, to keep them from condemnation. To keep them from going too far away. Christian, do you have troubles that often come and afflict you? It may be that God is calling your attention to and repentance from some sin in your life. Certainly not all calamities that befall us are traceable to sin, but I'm sure there are more points of discipline from the Lord than we recognize. 
And so what the Scripture calls us to do, repent, confess your sins, and let the Holy Spirit, in building repentance inside you, define and condemn the sin that you have held on to. The work of destroying sin in our lives is never done. While we are in this flesh, we will struggle with sin. But the point is to struggle against it. To strive against it. Not to give in to it and allow it to reign in your body or your life. And so the Bible says, confess your sins. Let's pray. Our Father, You have called us to come to You and to declare our guilt wherever we find it. In the Garden of Eden, as You confronted Adam and Eve in that garden, the first thing You did was lead them in confession. What have you done? That is born of repentance. You have walked us through leaving our sin behind. You have enabled us to do it through the Lord Jesus Christ. You have placed within us your Holy Spirit. Let us never take those gifts lightly. Let us never look at them and think to ourselves, well, God will forgive us. I don't have to do anything. Break our hearts when we sin against You. And let us seek healing in You. We seek forgiveness in You. We want to be an example of who You are. To be more closely rebuilt in the image of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.